Hello, and welcome to the MCAP Podcast, proudly presented by Roast House Pub, where elevated culinary creations meet a fresh, evolving craft beer selection, making it one of Frederick's unique dining destinations. Hello, I'm your host, Chris Sands, and today we're at Sapwood Cellars in the tasting room recording. This is our second episode with Sapwood Cellars, but the first time we only had Michael Tonsmeyer on. Uh, this time we are joined by Scott... Janish. Janish. Yeah. I, I, I was going to get it <laughs> right. Was, there was the pause. There, I <laughs> but I, because I, I, I almost said Panish, <laughs> but then I quickly corrected myself. Um, so now we've collected both founders. Um, this was easier with only two. It took us close to three years to collect all three union <laughs> founders on one show. Um, so we have a lot to cover because one, we have to do all the normal background fun stuff with you, Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, you also went ahead and wrote a book, so we need to talk about that because <laughs> we talked about Michael's book before. Um, Got to be fair, right? Yeah. <laughs> we at least try to be. Um, and then uh, and there's all kinds of other stuff to talk about. This beer that we're drinking, the Modern Times collab. Um, you've been in business for a year. You've come out with soon to be two different uh, natural fermentations. Is that the right term to use? I we, always feel like, a, like that's seems to be like a toss up on who you talk to. Yeah. We, and this one, I guess really will be a natural fermentation because uh, we worked with the local natural winery, but we, we go back and forth between saying wild ale and whether or not that, that uh, correctly describes what we're doing, but yeah, just mixed fermentation, mixed fermentation. Me. Yeah. And then all the people then will also just call it sour beer so i guess really you just have to um same as like people like me who mispronounce your name all the time you just have to go with whatever someone says <laughs> pretty much yeah, a mix, mixed fermentation doesn't necessarily mean sour either so yeah. that's can be a little misleading but. yeah all right so let's start with you scott sure um what were you doing before uh you even decided that you wanted to open a brewery yeah, before um, I was working on doing the political thing. I was in Washington, D.C., um, doing government affairs, um, basically lobbying for um, financial regulation. So um, I did that for about 13, 13 years or so. Um, so, yeah, this is a, a drastic change of uh, pace. Um, no longer am I wearing a suit every day. Um, it's pretty great. That seems that there's uh, quite a few people that have opened breweries after getting a start and well, I mean it's probably not a national trend probably more to just say around about, DC like, yeah. about our, our geography of that's what you were doing um, so what made you want to get out of that um, it, it was a great job I, I enjoyed it um, quite a bit but um, you know when Mike and I got together and started talking about um, opening sapwood and the closer we got to actual um, opening after we signed the lease and we were starting to put in put in the hours to to make this happen you, you just realize i can't i can't do both anymore scott scott had a lot of senioritis towards the end yeah. <laughs> it's, it's true um so i don't i don't think i've i mean even though we've had people on it i don't think i've ever had someone describe what a lobbyist does <laughs> so like what would your typical day be like when you woke up what did uh News. So in the mornings, you just you read um, a couple different newspapers uh, like the Politicos and, and things like that. 
Um, you kind of always have to know what everyone is up to, um, even if it's issues that aren't related to yours, because it can all be relevant, um, especially just when you're having conversations with people on the Hill. Um, meet with a lot of staff members of senators and um, representatives. Um, do a lot of what we would call educating. So um, whatever our issues are, we go explain those um, to, to staff. And then, um, of course, meeting with um, senators and reps themselves. Um, just basically, it's a it's a it's a grind. You're you're for you might have an issue you're trying to get past, and it might take you you know seven years for it to happen. But it's just a slow, slow progress. So, so are you as bad of a person as people say lobbyists are? <laughs> um, I was in a unique space, though. I was working for a financial regulator, um, and so we. Um, oh, so you were on our side. It, it depends on which side, yeah, you're on. Um, <laughs> But you, we had different, I mean, we couldn't spend money um, lobbying dollars. And so it was, it was kind of a, a different game um, for that side of things. So, I'm not, I think in the, I'd say before doing Uncapped, I had knew nothing about lobbying at all. Um, and it was amazing how political beer was. It was at least amazing to me how political beer was. Um, but one thing I learned is like, you, you always hear about lobbying and lobbyists as this evil thing, yeah. but, and maybe I'm wrong, you could correct me, but from, it seems like it, it's 100% absolutely necessary. Yeah, I, I always like to say like, um, I mean, every group has, has a lobby, like a, a lobbyist or a group that represents them. I mean, the Humane Society, um, if you're a lobbyist for them, I mean, I don't think people would say you're evil. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it is it is necessary. I mean, it's it's the way the game is played. And so if you kind of want to get your issues out front, you got to play. But, I mean, even from the standpoint, like, you can't expect a politician to know everything about everything. So, it can, and I mean, is that a big part of lobbying? Like, what it, to, exp, like, you're just yeah. literally explaining the details of you, that subject matter and your opinion. Yeah, basically. Um, you're doing most of that with the staff. Um, and so they're, they're the ones that really um, push the papers and make, make things actually happen. Um, so you're really focused on educating um, like a senator's um, chief of staff, for example. Okay. Um, and then when you meet with the senator, it's more top level. Glad handing yeah. and trying yeah. to get them to like you. so that Exactly. <laughs> So then would you have to go around and do that to each and every thankfully, senator thankfully and representative? Not. Um, it's broken down. So you just would follow. So I was doing mostly like banking securities issues. So um, you're focused on um, the, the committees that, okay. that have jurisdiction and even more the sub um, the subcommittees that um, that have jurisdiction over your issues. So it's it's a more focused um, approach. Okay. So for s some other topics or categories, would a lobbyist have to go around to like absolutely everyone or does, is the way the government works that you always would work on the committees and then? Yeah, that's basically, you, okay. you're, you're focusing your, your efforts on um, those that can actually make whatever you're after happen. Okay, um, that makes more sense. Cause yeah. the other way in my mind, that would probably be absolutely miserable. Yeah, that would be a, like just that'd be a lot of handshaking. <laughs> And um, telling the same yeah. story over and over. Yeah. <laughs> you just record it and play. Here, I want you to listen to this while <laughs> I look at you and smile. <laughs> uh, yeah, I made, 
I don't know if I, I necessarily made the mistake, but early on we held an event um, here that was the, was that Maryland? Um, Bam. Yeah, Brewers Bam. Association of Maryland. And I was like, oh, yeah, I used to be in politics. And they're like, oh, really? Uh, we got a few jobs for you. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into brewing? Because you, you, both of you, you share the brewing, right? Yep. Yep. Um, for me, it was a similar story to a lot of um, home brewers. I was gifted a homebrew kit um and just a mr beer uh let's see it was better. brooklyn i think it was a brooklyn oh, one, beer the one gallon yeah uh, um and i don't know that was seven years ago or so um and uh, the, the story i like to tell is like it was like the most it was awful the beer was so bad um i, I have a very specific memory of it tasting exactly like um soap um, but it was kind of, that, I think it was because it was, a, a good, no, good it was not good at all. <laughs> um, I, I can remember like when I was doing the mash is like, you should have it at whatever uh, temperature. And I was just thinking, this can't matter. This can't matter. How, how could the temperature <laughs> like, possibly Like what make a 10 a degree swing? What's that going to do? Um, but be, you know, cause it was so bad, I think is part of the reason I got so hooked because I was like, I, I can do this better. Um, you know, if it was great right away, I might've been like, okay, well that was check that one yeah off the that list. was easy um <laughs> well i'm good at that let's yeah. find something else to do um but then i just really got into it um probably like a lot of homebrewers you get a little obsessed um and I, I know both of us having um blogs we were definitely in that category of obsessed homebrewers um uh, what was your blog uh, it was just uh it's scottjanish.com okay mike likes to, i couldn't come up with something as clever as the mad fermentationist <laughs> that wasn't already taken um but i i so I, I had more of like a um, scientific approach. I would do a lot of um, research on um, um, academic studies that were out there and, and try to piece together um, results from different studies and then brew some test batches to try them out and then just kind of write about the process. Um, so it was a little unique in, in that sense um, compared to a lot of other blogs or just kind of recipe-based results. Um, but it was great. It, it's a, it was really a way to force me into learning more and more about beer, understanding what we're doing, why are we doing it, is, are certain things necessary, um, inspire new techniques or processes. So it, was, it ended up being a, a great thing. I think you're one of the first people who have used that phrase that I've talked to about the why we're doing things. Do you, do you think most... Um, most brewers think about it that way, way or do they learn what to do and just do that? Uh, I, just, I would imagine like your better brewers have like need have that why we're doing it. Yeah. I, I think just kind of depends on the personality of, of the brewer. Um, for, for us, I think we're so focused on trying to brew the best thing possible. Um, and not always just taking, um, what you've been told is uh, the way to do something, but really sort of um, look behind it a little more and be like, all right, is this necessary? Um, is this making better beer? Um, sometimes it's the opposite where the, the science is saying something and then you try to um, change your process to align more with that and it doesn't necessarily work out or make better beer, so there's no reason to, to do it. So, I mean, I, for us, I think the why is, is an important uh, aspect of of how we or how we approach brewing, yeah. I, I, to me, science is always great for explaining 
what's causing something. It's great for giving a little insight on what you might want to try. Hey, this hop variety has the most hop-derived esters of any of the ones tested in this study, which means it would be great at this point in the uh, brewing process. Let's try it. Yeah. But then at the end, the answer is it how, how delicious <laughs> is the beer? It doesn't matter if uh, this or that um, has a particular scientific impact if it doesn't make a beer we want to drink. So <clears throat> you brewed your first batch. Mm-hmm. It was awful, yeah. which I think, of, think I've only found one or two people to claim that their first home brew was good. Mine, mine was like, okay. <laughs> it was at least drinkable. That's it was drinkable <laughs> until, until it got really, really carbonated like a month later. That, that was one of the biggest problems with mine. It's, and I, I recently, I didn't realize that uh, the gentleman that I first home brewed with listens to this. Oh, boy. And <laughs> what, Did you blame uh, it on him? I didn't blame it on him. And I, I told him I thought his anger was unfounded. <laughs> that, that I, I said that even though I had someone who was a veteran home brewer helping me, it's like my presence made it not turn out good. <laughs> Uh, but he took it as a personal slight against <laughs> him. Um, the biggest problem with it, it was like at first there was no carbonation. And then like a couple months later, it was a geyser. Yeah. Um, Might but it have was been an true. infection. That's yeah. just, that's my guess. Yeah. Well, it, it, it probably was because yeah. it was a vanilla bourbon barrel aged uh, stout. This was the first one you attempted? Yeah. Wow. So I'm sure like. The vanilla beans or something, uh, the uh, oak spirals or yeah. something weren't. We, we just talked to a brewer who was saying that they plated out their vanilla and it was covered in all sorts of microbes and they've changed their process since. <laughs> so my, my guess would be if it was infected, it was one of those, one of those two things that caused it. Um, and yes, but it was because I, like, it was someone who knew how to homebrew that I was brewing with that was teaching me how to homebrew. Um. But I, I wish I could remember who it was we, we interviewed that like went straight from brewing an undrinkable, awful batch to then like become like just deciding they were going to become a professional brewer. I'm, I'm almost positive it was Adrian, the owner of Ocelot, but I can't remember for sure if it was him. We're big fans of him. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, one of the most interesting people to talk to. So, how long how long did it take before you're like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna do this for a living? <laughs> it was definitely a slow, slow <laughs> progression. Slow burn. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just started out. I think like most doing the small batches, the one gallon to five gallon. Um, over time, um, writing more about it, thinking more serious about it, you start to find yourselves in situations with other like-minded brewers, um, which is a big reason how Mike and I got together. Um, And I just think, you know, after so long, you were kind of like, well, we can maybe maybe pull this off. Um, So it was was definitely a slow, slow (laughs) progression. All right, so we're going to take a real quick break for uh, a sponsor. And when we come back... We'll uh, we'll save the book discussion for a little bit later, so sure. Mike doesn't have to sit there <laughs> quietly. Um, hey, we'll talk about the first year being open and all the fun stuff you guys have done in that time. 
Uncapped is brought to you by one of Frederick's original Maryland craft beer destinations, located off of Urbana Pike, featuring a warm, inviting atmosphere and knowledgeable staff serving up fresh, locally sourced culinary creations and unique craft beers on tap. Open seven days a week, our friends at Roast House Pub invite you to enjoy a casual lunch, happy hour specials, delicious dinners, and specialty desserts. Follow them on social media to keep up to date on their monthly beer dinners, mom's spaghetti dinner battles, and what beer is being featured for Buck Above Monday. Right, so you guys have been open for, what, like a year and a month now, roughly? Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it depends. When we, we took possession of this space almost two years ago, but the tasting room opened um, September 28th. 2018 so how how'd the first year go from an outside perspective it looks like it went well yeah we're, we're still in the tasting room we're not out of business <laughs> yeah success <laughs> yeah. so i keep saying we sold enough beer to do it for another year at least yeah no i mean I, I i think it you know we didn't run into any massive roadblocks we probably got lucky a couple of times with you know the liquor license coming through when it finally did you know three mm-hmm. months after we opened uh, since we were running low on the special event permits from the uh, the great state of Maryland, um, beers we were reasonably happy with them, and we we certainly dumped a few kegs along the way. But for the most part, you know, it seems like the response has been good. Uh, the employees have been fantastic. Um, the equipment has worked out for the most part, other than a couple little hiccups. So the how I think you recently put actually you. You have a ridiculously amount of geeky data <laughs> that you post every once in a while, because I think it, it was you that posted like like the number of batches you've done and all the like the pints poured. Yeah, and is that um, do you use that data as just like um, a geeky uh, curiosity, or are you able to gleam? anything to help the brewery from all the data that you're collecting because i'm i'm assuming you're just collecting tons of data if you had all that yeah i mean now everything is web enabled and so you know i i can just go on to our point of sale system and see what sold it's not something we look at on like a a weekly or monthly basis really is me sort of looking back at that first year and just trying to get a sense of the scale of what we'd done um you know how many batches brewed and and to let people know sort of you know what size brewery we are it's it's sometimes it's surprising what breweries are bigger than you think they are and what breweries are smaller and um i mean i i we just always want to make that point that we're we're a small little local brewery um we don't put the little independent thing symbol on the back of our cans because if you if somebody's so big that you can't tell if they're independent or not i think that that says something that you need to have that symbol Versus if you come in here and the brewers are behind the bar talking to people and you can see the vats, like, you know we're not owned by Budweiser. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's pretty obvious. There's a good chance that the... <laughs> um, so through, throughout the year, you had several can releases. Um, Three. And you recently had your first uh, release of what I think was one of the things that people were most excited about sapwood coming out with due to your background um your book and being known at uh, well i guess writing the book on sour beer and no pressure right yeah no so um how how was it received pretty well i mean it's it's uh took a little bit of uh, messaging to make the point that it was not in fact a sour beer it was a barrel fermented mixed ferment saison um 
but it seemed to go over well. Um, our, our club members who have been patiently waiting for beer they paid for like more than a year ago <laughs> uh, seemed, seemed happy with it. We did a special uh, Nelson Savin dry hop version called Thanks for Waiting that was just for the club that uh, they, they got to have something for their patients. Um, but now really it's uh, we just packaged our fifth uh, bottle run and so far, every single one of those has been beer we brewed before the tasting room was open. So, I mean, it's, you know, eight, eight to, you know, 14 months in oak is about what we're looking at. And so now finally that that pipeline has been built up, we're aiming for monthly or even twice a month uh, ball releases if the yeast behaves. And that was part <laughs> of, that was sort of uh, some of the education we had to do early on in the, the tasting room was explaining to people this process and why it takes so long why we didn't have five sour beers on tap on opening day (laughs) a month a month after we started brewing so we had two why why does it take so long um the microbes involved just are not fast um you can do a kettle sour and we certainly do some some quicker fermentations Uh, we've only done one actual kettle sour but we'll do mixed fermentations with lactobacillus which people know from yogurt or buttermilk or sourdough bread just makes lactic acid very quickly but that's pretty much all it does it doesn't really make any interesting flavorful byproducts or esters or phenols and so kettle sours are great if you want to taste fruit plus sour or hops plus sour or anything other than sort of interesting microbial character Um, but when you're talking about barrel aging you're talking about Britannomyces which can take uh, months to complete its work and produce all these fantastic fruity esters that taste like pineapple and guava and cherry and, and all sorts of fun things. Um, plus the notes you get from the oak and the barrel aging and plus just sort of this additional time that we need for natural fermentation in the bottle to produce carbonation, that we need for clarification, that we need for timing of local fruit when it's in season. Um, we recently bottled one with a whole bunch of local sour cherries and we've got some on local peaches and nectarines and you know, sadly, local fruit isn't available, uh, you know, eight months a year. Like if, if we were in California or something, you know, cherries, I think it was like a 10-day window we could yeah. get them. <laughs> you got to have the beer ready when the, yeah. when the fruit is ready. And then we'll, we do a lot of uh, kind of how a lot of uh, winemaking is done, um, blending to, to get a finished product. So um, one batch might be in five different wood barrels, for example, and then we'll have different microbes in each barrel, which um, will each produce, uh, despite being the same base beer, um, in some cases, completely different tasting beer. Um, and then so we can sit down and um, sample all those and then come up with uh, a blend. And then so we might take um, half of one barrel and two other barrels, blend it into our blending tank, and then bottle from there. So um, it, it does give you a little more control over the uncontrollable microbes. <laughs> so the you said seven to eight months. Is, is that sort of the minimum yeah okay so even longer yeah. possibly how long um does it sit on the fruit um uh, d- depends we've done some dried fruit so we'll, we'll sometimes sort of layer in fruit additions so um for the cherry beer for example we did dried sour cherries in the barrel for about eight months then out of the barrel onto fresh sour cherries for two to three months okay um and, and usually for us the fresh fruit's a, a relatively short window um again two to three months um Fruit, sort of just like a hoppy beer, will fade with time. And I'd rather have that fresh fruit flavor as bright and fresh and vibrant as possible when the beer is in the consumer's hand. And if they want to sit on it for six months or a year or 10 years to see how it changes, 
they're welcome to it, but I'd rather kind of at least give them the chance to have it as fresh and juicy as possible. Yeah, it, from, it's kind of helpful to think about like uh, that approach similar to like hoppy beers. So um, in a hoppy beer, you load up your whirlpool with a bunch of hops and that kind of gives you your base like hop fruit. That's saturated. Yeah, the hop saturated flavor. Um, um, in when we're adding some of these dried fruits to the barrel for the long-term aging, that's kind of like getting that base fruit layer into the, into the flavor. Um, and then back to um, clean beers, when you dry hop right before you package, same thing with um, the sour beer after a year, then you're adding that fresh fruit to get that bright um, flavor. So are you adding the fruit into the barrel or is that in the blending tank or um so we, we the dried fruit has been directly in the barrels just because that's what makes sense for that long-term exposure we then have some um, additional tanks we use solely for fruit additions okay and what we'll often do is over fruit the beer um so we'll just take one barrel say and put the amount of fruit we might be planning to put into uh, 150 or 250 gallons of beer and then we'll blend that in the blending tank with non-fruited beer um, and that will give us a way to sort of hone in the amount of fruit oh, okay. and the, the character we're looking cool. for. Cool. You answered my last question because it was going to be, do you blend before or after the fruit edition? So it, it's a little bit of both. Yeah, and it's it's nice. It gives us options. So like right now we've got um, the same beer on peaches and nectarines, and we're not entirely sure if we're going to have uh, a moderate amount of peach beer and a moderate amount of nectarine beer or if they're going to taste better together and and have more peach nectarine beer there's always sort of there there's a um, plan yeah. going into these beers but you kind of have to let them um, yeah. it's 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 a loose it's a loose plan yeah. it's not the the sort of uh, a schedule that you might have at a production brewery that's on day six we cold crash on day seven we dry hop on day 12 we centrifuge on day 14 we package it's sort of like hey, it would be real cool if this beer was at this point then so we could do this to it. Or, hey, maybe we'll take one of those and blend it in with this. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to end up with sort of extra. And we already have some sort of extra barrels that didn't make the blend but just maybe need a little more time that we might start doing some of that blending between different brands. Um, currently, everything we've blended has been um, recombining a batch. So we split that into five barrels and three of those got blended back together. Okay. We've yet to blend sort of across batches. Um, but we've got some sort of um, aged pale. Um, we're calling those sort of the, the, the base name is Marylandbic. Marylandbic. <laughs> um, and we've got uh, 15 of those barrels that all have different cultures and aged hops and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, and that, that would be something we'd be more likely to blend between to get some older beer, some younger beer, some different barrel character. And it's also, you just, we're sitting on a lot of these too. If we want to do like a three year blend at some point, you can't package all of your beer now. You got to, you got to have something three years from now, yeah. two years from now. So, and not, and not just sort of the junk that's left over. Yeah. something that, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just left because it it wasn't good enough to make it into anything. Right. That's got to be very tempting and hard to not like. If you try something and it's really good to, to although do, do you then run the risk that if you do hold on to it that much longer, that it is no yeah, longer it could, going. It, to it be, could change definitely. Yeah, and and, and that's really the skill set that. Um, breweries that really focus on this stuff yet is that they learn wow this doesn't taste great now but it kind of tastes like that barrel we had three years ago that really ended up in a great place um, and sort of in in that direction too we're hanging on to a lot of the beer that we release to do vintage bottles both for our own edification of how is this beer after two or three years but also so hey next time we release a blended mixed ferment saison from the same barrels we can have 50 bottles to do tasting room sales um 
of the previous batch so people can try the brand new one that just came out of those barrels plus um, for you know a dollar upcharge the old one that you know came out of those barrels yeah. a year and a half ago that they can then go wow if it tastes like this now maybe it's going to taste like that you know in a year and I'm going to grab an extra bottle and hang on to it at home in my basement and and see where it goes yeah I mean a lot of these beers when we're tasting them um four months into the barrel versus eight months they're completely different so there's you know a good chance after it sits in a bottle um with with uh brett still active and going yeah. it's it's going to change over time yeah very it, very very different than the old joke about whiskey like what do you what do you get if you uh hang on to a, a eight-year-old whiskey for 10 more years a dusty eight-year-old bottle of whiskey yeah, <laughs> yeah I, i've never understood why people do that <laughs> um do they have um, predictable uh, like paths, kind of like flavor pro- progressions? So, like, I guess specifically, the question I'm trying to answer in my head is that I had a beer once; it was really bad, um, and they're like funky cheese flavors to it. And I was told if that person just would have waited longer, that then the next progression is when it goes into the fruity esters and it it depends it depends on the flavor um there's certainly some flavors like like um, vinegar or acetic acid that you really can't recover from okay um acetic acid goes to ethyl acetate which is like nail polish remover if you get more of it it just becomes more and more (laughs) like solvent um very very low levels can be like um um, fruity pear-like um, they're definitely like everyone has some beers. Like we have uh, one of our fruit tanks has um, THP tetrahydropyridine, which to both of us I think comes across as this sort of, um, particularly in the finish, like a toasty, weedy Cheerio kind of thing. It just lingers. Yeah, it just it. lingers. Um, some people t- traditionally in wine, it's, uh, people call it mousy, um, like mouse urine. If you've ever you know, clean, cleaned up after a rodent infestation, I have not. Uh-huh. Um, but luckily, that's something they at least in our experience at home goes away eventually. But okay. We were really hoping to package that beer sooner <laughs> rather than later, and and so now it's just you just have to let it do it, let it let it do its thing, and yeah. sort of just wait for it to. to do peak. the two of you have similar palates, or are? I think everyone's a little more sensitive to certain certain that, compounds, yeah, that's what certain I mean, flavors. Because like um, I I would feel like what you're doing would be dangerous like if there's holes in your combined palates so like me personally i'm not there has to be a ton of diacetyl for me to pick it up um Mm -hmm. and what's the other there's an there's another off flavor like there has to be a lot for like i'm but then there are some like I'm super sensitive to. So. Yeah, I think there's something like I think I'm probably a little more sensitive to like, alcohol warmth and heat. Yeah. Um, Acid too. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but I think when it comes to like putting together blends, we have very yeah. similar palettes. Um, it's been pretty universal, and we say, okay, this is this is the best blend. Yeah. No, and, and definitely do sort of more sensitive to different things. But um, I, I think the important thing is sort of agreeing on what the goal is, and then both working towards the same goal rather than. Scott blending in a way that's going to end up with a very different beer than what I'm envisioning. And so, you know, you taste, taste through the samples you have, and then you discuss, like, what are we trying to get out of this? What's the goal here? What, you know, do we like one of them, but we want to add a little bit more acid? Do we um, want to get this sort of interesting, fun flavor from this one, but not use too much of it because it has some other flavor? Um, and just, like, really 
going through it, but also like we'll pull in Spencer, our tasting room manager, who I mean, I probably just as good, if not better at blending than the two of us are. And Definitely. we're always trying to pull in people. Um, okay. Who, so cool. That was my next question. Yeah. Do you also bring in your other employees to get their feedback on? Yeah. I mean, the more palettes you can get on a blend, like just more um, opinions. If someone might say a description or a descriptor that you're like, Ooh, wow, I didn't, I didn't get that right away. Yeah. And that's definitely not something I want everyone tasting or, um, it, it, it can be helpful, especially if you can get pallets in um, with different um, expertise than, than we have. And uh, we're going to take another real quick commercial break. Um, and I, I have a couple more questions and things to further go down that um, road. And then I want to talk about collaborations, too, and what uh, your philosophy behind them, because you guys have participated in a lot of different collaborations with different breweries. Uh, so we'll be right back. The Uncapped Podcast is brought to you by District East. A lot of Friday and Saturday afternoons, you'll find me at District East for their weekly beer tastings. District East is part of the local beer community, and they get limited releases and exclusive beers that are hard to find anyplace else. This is why I chose District East for the release of my collaboration beers. One of my favorite things to do at District East is building a custom six-pack. With over 900 beers on their shelves and new beers every week, District East is a great place to find beers I love and to discover new and hard-to-find ones. They also have eight beers on tap for Crowler and Growler fills, and they have kegs to go. District East is located on Northeast Street in Frederick, in the same shopping center as Family Mill and Rockwell Brewery. You can find today's beer lists on the District East Facebook page or at www.districteast.beer. And so um, a little bit more like with blending and knowing when to release beers and flavor profiles and all that stuff. It was actually, it's funny. It's a, it's an episode I recorded probably about two months ago now, but it, it won't be released until next weekend, which will probably be a few weeks from when this is going to okay. be <laughs> released. But Attaboy um, is opening a barrel house. Yeah. We got a little, a little, or I got a little look around there when I was up for the uh, BAM technical meeting uh, a few months ago. Yeah. Very different from, from then. Yeah. Um, now was oh, it's we, really come along. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, well, because that's what part of why we've been holding this episode for so long. Because it's like they've kind of teased at it a little bit, but like mm-hmm. they're we're releasing this when they're ready to release like all the details. Oh, and, awesome! Uh, Makes sense. Cool. Um, and one of the things they talked about during that episode was um, that that they learned quickly. Like they put out a beer that they ended up pulling back and dumping. Because for a while it was mainly him and Carly tasting all the beers beforehand, and they had had a cold or something, and they didn't pick up on a really bad off flavor. So I I had never heard of the term before, but so they said they implemented triangle testing, where they'll do panels with all of their employees, um, but as a triangle test as a way to throw out anyone whose palate isn't mm-hmm. like, isn't so, what they're so looking they're, for. They're doctoring beers in some way and, and saying, hey, if you can't taste 30 ppm diacetyl. Or even so much like um, that if they're just want to compare two different two different things, like not even just like the the, the actual picking up of off flavors, but even so when when we were there they had uh their ford ranger and or fjord because they kept 
correcting me, Ranger, and oh my goodness, I can't remember. And another beer sure. that had the, <clears throat> were the same beer, just different yeasts. Okay. Um, so like they use that as an example of triangle test. There would be two of the same, and then only yep. one of the fjord. The odd one out. And then like we had the so they had Graham and I point out which one mm-hmm. was the the different one. Um. So do you? And I guess you kind of already answered that. You said you do as many pallets as you can get involved. You, you find beneficial. It's, it's more for us. It's things like um, letting people try the beer bef- when, once it's done and bottled before we release it or label it or anything like that. So like there's a, a group of guys that I, I've been hanging out with for years who have bottle shares in Colombia, and a bunch of them joined our clubs. And, and every time they come over, they're always toting fantastic beer from around the world that they've traded for or traveled for. And we'll often open a bottle or two a couple of months out and say, hey, what do you guys think? And get some, and they're, they are honest guys, and they'll let us know if there's an off flavor, if they yeah. like it or they don't like it, or if it's just, hey, it's a good beer, but it's not to my taste. Um, and we trust probably the group consensus. I, I wouldn't say <laughs> I trust every single member of them every yeah. single time, but um, I think it's valuable to, to get the finished beer in front of a bunch of people. If a, a whole bunch of them were like, whoa, you got this, or there's something going on. Um, but not necessarily bringing them in on a blending day, just because even if you blend perfectly, the beer can change. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, what Mike just implied there is we will sit on bottles after they're packaged for at least a month. And this was bottled in July, yeah. I think, and, and we're probably releasing it, so what, four months in the bottle, essentially, before we release it. Is that to make sure things don't go south, or...? Exactly. So we, we want to make sure, one, it carbonates, and then, two, it doesn't overcarbonate. Um, but then also just flavors change, and you can, um, you can get some weird flavors early on. Um, and we just want to make sure that all those flavors have um, cleaned up, finished out, and that we're happy with where the beers ended up. Just want to make sure it's behaving. Yeah. <laughs> what, um, what do you consider worse, overcarbonation or undercarbonation? Depends on the beer, I think. I, I think in general, overcarbonation because overcarbonation can be like a safety issue. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, if Pop. bottles are exploding or, or shooting out, for a lot of beers, yeah. I, and this, you know, Scott and I, I think are both tend to like lower carbonation than some people. Um, there are a lot of people out there who want everything. My mother, for example, wants everything to be very champagne-like, spritzy. Um, and for us, it's it's usually to me too much carbonation in a complex beer, kind of gets in the way it, it sweeps off your palate very quickly it um, uh, prevents you from sort of savoring those more complex flavors it can also the higher the carbonation can kind of bring down the softness on the palate a little bit it just makes it a little more that spritzy thing on your tongue um, can get in the way of um, say like a soft hazy ipa for example yeah i um i had never known like how like even just little tweaks in carbonation, how much thought you guys as professional brewers put in into a beer things until I made a beer with um, an oxy brewing company and Tom Flores and I spent a lot of time discussing and picking how like the carbonation level we were going to have on the beer. Like it was just something I'd never even thought of when it came to beer before. And, and it's tough, particularly like we serve all our beers from the same um, serving lines. And so we kind of have to worry about too much carbonation. We get too much foaming, not enough. It's not going to look good in the glass. And 
we're often we have different faucets and we'll change them out depending on what we're trying to accomplish. We've got a little kegerator that we can keep a little bit warmer and dial in the, the carbonation a little bit more precisely if we want to put a stout on at the same time as a saison that you know really have different um, optimums. So um, since we're drinking one, uh, let's talk about collaborations now. Sure. Um, so actually, first, uh, as I was telling you that almost everything you listed about this beer I hate, um, but <laughs> altogether, it's absolutely delicious because I don't like saisons. Yeah. I don't like wine. Um, I don't even particularly like barrel-aged beer. <laughs> so, um, but it's absolutely delicious. Uh, you want to talk about this a little sure. bit? Sure. Um, so uh, Scott had been friends with um, a couple of the, the, the winemakers over at Old Westminster Winery in yeah. uh, Westminster, Maryland. I, uh, one had come over to my house, I think that was even before we opened, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, and so we'd, we'd talked to them last fall, and they said that they had some extra Chardonnay pomace. So pomace is just the skins and sort of all the other stuff that yeah. doesn't get pressed out into juice what's left behind and they actually use most of it to make a sort of light spritzy tart um thank you um and so we we i'm almost slightly embarrassed about myself that i was able to (laughs) (laughs) but that's it's only purely because their piquette is actually really really good it's a smart it's a smart move too i mean you're that would normally be like a a waste product of wine um but in, in our case, like uh, for this beer, we went out the day um, they pressed it um, so we could get that, you know, fresh and they were still yeah. in good I, I, shape. I talked to a couple other brewers who had gotten, it may have even been from them and then had sort of sat on it over a weekend and um, it had gone vinegary and it's just not, it, it's a perishable product. Um, and luckily for us, we had um, brewed in advance sort of this um, 6% pale Saison base with our house culture. Um, we got some of their house culture, so they're a natural winery, low intervention, so they have um, a culture that uh, is, is left over when they're done making the wine that has a lot of wild yeast and probably hybrids of um, you know, winemaking yeast and, and local cultures. In that case, they're, they're not adding yeast to these wines. They're just whatever yeast is present naturally there. on the grape skins themselves ferments it. Yeah. Um, and so our original concept for this beer was to do something inspired by an orange wine. So uh, long skin contact white. Um, we just put it into a tote. We let it sit there for like three or four months. months yeah. And it was like, okay. Like we, we kegged off a little bit for our, our club holiday party. And the re- response was pretty muted, uh, both, both from us and from um, our, our fans. And so we said, hey, let's throw it in some uh, three Chardonnay barrels. And add some more microbes, get a little bit more acidity, see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, we tossed in uh, like a six inch piece of Spanish cedar. Um, to Just a, in one barrel. To one barrel. We had left over from, we did a Spanish cedar IPA. Um, and uh, that sort of gives it this like grapefruity spice kind of thing. Um, after about six months in the barrel, um, I was away on vacation and uh, Scott and Spencer and uh, was it just you two or was it Warren involved too on the blending? Um, yeah, War- Warren was back there yeah. helping us out yeah. too, but we also, before that, oh. we took a, um, one of the barrels, um, one of the Chardonnay barrels and we, um, put it into another tote with, um, Cab Franc, uh, yeah. wine grapes and did a, a, another re-fermentation. Um, and that's where like you're, you're getting most of the color right now. Yeah. So it's, it's got, like a, a beautiful really, beer. Yeah. yeah. 
And so, and, and by that point, we sort of moved on to sort of a blush rosé kind of inspired, um, you know, a little bit of color, but not the sort of deep, saturated, jammy, um, you know, red wine beer that some people are doing. This is a, a great example of, um, we had an idea in mind of what we wanted to do for this beer, um, but it just didn't turn out that way, and you just kind of have to let it be how it is, and then evolve yeah. your approach to it. Um, and, and sometimes that involves with evolving down the drain, but luckily in this case... Yeah, there's definitely um, a budget for uh, drain beer. Yeah, we, we <laughs> had the space to um, let it keep going and, and turn into something. Um, that, that won't always be the case. Um, you know, we, we, we haven't had to dump any barrels yet, but I'm sure that day is coming in the not-too-distant future. The, the Cab, Franc, Cab Franc grapes, were those fresh ones, or were those also second-running those Great were, um, we got those, I believe those were um, arrived frozen. Yeah, they, they, they were frozen, but they were whole grape clusters, yeah. not, um, not pomace. Um, it, it, it wasn't, right a, it wasn't, it was what, it was 10 gallons of grapes for this is a 150 gallon blend or something. So mm-hmm. it was a, a very low amount of grapes. Okay. And it's fun to get the actual um, skins involved too, because you could just get um, juice. Um, wine juice, essentially, of, of and, different varieties. And we've done varietals. that with, with like IPAs and things mm-hmm. where that's like a much easier thing to deal with. But for this, exactly. Yeah, um, the, there's more compounds that can be, um, there's more play between yeast and bread with certain compounds in the um, grape skins. And so it's, it's fun on these barrel-aged beers to get um, the actual fruit. What's the ABV on this? 7.2? And that's... I, I'm not sure we should we should say this. I don't know if the TTB listens, but it's it's a relatively um, estimated sort of volume because we're adding grapes and the skins and yeah. barrel. It's it's um, we we have a decent idea of where it is within within 0.3 percent, which is what's legally required. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, that's one of the the things with sour beers, um, particularly mixed ferment barrel ones, is that they dry out so far that um, you can start with a beer like this that would have made a, a four and a half or a 5% pale ale and end up with a 7% uh, after most of the sugar has been converted to alcohol beer. Because yeah, it doesn't, um, doesn't taste like there's much alcohol in it. So I was wondering if it was like super low or, but yeah, that's no, it's oh, big. Um, sour beers tend to hide their alcohol. Yeah. Well, I think Brett tends to turn some of those fusel alcohols into esters and other things. It's, um, it, we've, we've got some pretty big ones. We've got uh, uh, like Imperial Flanders Red going in some local port barrels um, that I think will probably be 10, 10 and a half percent. And it, last I pulled the sample, it didn't taste like it. And on the, on the nose, it seems more wine-like than beer-like. Um, yeah, I mean, a combination of wine barrel. first used wine barrels, pomace, um, grapes. You know, no, no one of those is like a, a, probably enough to make it yeah. a, a real wine-forward beer, but wine. sort of combined... Wine grapes, wine barrel, wine yeast. Yeah. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of wine components <laughs> to this beer. And, and be, being sapwood sellers, we, we needed to start living <laughs> up to our name. And this was a fun um, collaboration um, we did with Old Westminster because you, um, you can approach collaborations in different ways. And, I, and for us, I think um, it's fun to do it with another um, industry expert in, in a separate industry so you can really learn... Um, there's a lot to be learned from both parties involved, um, hopefully in their case, beer, and then uh, for us, um, more aspects of winemaking. So yeah. this, is a, this is a fun one to do with them. Yeah, we did uh, another collab with Supreme Core Cidery down in D.C., yeah. and we've worked with Vigilante Coffee. And, um, you know, just it's, it's more interesting than getting together with the other brewers who go, well, you want to make an IPA? Yeah. <laughs> Hazy? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> 
the 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 um the two guys from Vigilante are awesome. I've had them on when we were talking about um Cujo because they did the yep. the cold press coffee for this last batch of it. Yeah, we we had a lot of fun. We had um their uh, head roaster uh, Franklin, Franklin out yeah. to uh, do an event where we did uh, seven different coffee beers. So we used like the same coffee, um, one roasted last week, one roasted the day before we used it, cold brew versus adding the beans directly, different coffees like in like the a same beer. wash versus a normal washed. And it was just, um, it was fun because you side by side, you really could learn a lot. And then um, having Franklin here to talk about each, each coffee too, it, it was, um, it furthered, uh, I th- we ended up doing, uh, kind of everything we learned from making those seven different coffee beers with Franklin, we kind of put together and, and did, um, Bangun, Bang which is, um, it's, I think we're down to our last keg now, yeah. but it'll be long gone by the time this airs. But I, I think that, that, that it was a good example of doing a collaboration with someone with expertise that we don't have that eventually, um, improved our, our process. And, and we probably made a better coffee beer because of that. So when you're looking to do collaborations, are you? Like, is it both where you just want to make a cool beer with friends, or do you mainly look for to use it as a learning experience? It's it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's certainly marketing is part of doing collaborations and and um, working with breweries that have good reputations is certainly part of that. Um, but really, yeah, the goal is to like do to learn something and in that learning. Um, hopefully both ways learning, um, creating a better beer, a more interesting beer, a beer we wouldn't have created ourselves, but is also not so far out in, in left field that it's not something we're interested in drinking or excited to brew. And in the, in our case too, I mean, we're essentially just two home brewers that, that started up here. And so we had a lot to learn early on from doing collaborations with local breweries on just how they approach brewing on a larger scale. Cause that was to us was, for the most part, um, new Mike had a little more experience um, helping Modern Times out on the West Coast, which is uh, where we were just lucky enough a couple of weeks ago to do uh, our second collaboration. Yeah. <laughs> so the well, yeah, because no, no matter how great a beer you can make as a home brewer, there's still a lot of stuff you wouldn't know without being a professional. Well, it's, like it's the, just the little things would come back from a collab at a local brewery and go, man, that, that hose they had was so much better than our awful $40 <laughs> Home Depot hose that we've replaced for the third time this month. Cool, we should probably spend that $300 to get the real insulated 160-degree, you know, certified, whatever. Yeah, um, I guess that's a, a big part of it, too, just the exposure to different tools. Yeah, different exactly. techniques, different, hey, how do you do this? How do you get the temperature down for the Whirlpool? How do you... You know, hey, can I come hang out and watch your canning line for a while and see how it works? And and it's it, they'd probably say yes even if you were just a local brewer who was interested in what yeah. how you did something. But it's like an excuse to go over there. Um, and we always try to like actually as much as we can make it an active collaboration where we're actually there for the brewing process and and um, helping out in in whatever way we can. And that certainly is different at different breweries. But um, you, you don't want to get in the way either. Yeah. So. Yeah. They know how everything is set up and what yeah. what buttons to press, right? So, well, it's like I I and I think I've done like six at this point now, and I definitely feel that way because I'm not even a home brewer really anymore. So the last thing I want to do is actually get in the way. But like 
with working with Tom at Monocacy, like he let me be absolutely involved in everything. So it was, it was a cool learning experience. I would never get any other way. Yeah. Sounds like he, he found a, a way to get some cheap labor. <laughs> well, I didn't, I, I didn't do a ton of the labor. It was more of like the recipe development and like all the, the step, like basically yeah. his process of how yeah. to make, making the choices yeah. at each stage beyond yeah. just what's the malt, what's the hops, yeah. what's the, um, yeah, no. So that's, we've, we've, uh, we've been kicking around more, uh, collab ideas, but I mean, it's, it's not something we do, you know, it's, we rarely have more than one collab on tap at a time, but uh, it's, it's something that certainly breaks, breaks up the brewing monotony. Um, we're going to take one final quick break, and then we can talk a little bit about um, the Modern Times collab, because I think that one's interesting from the aspect of, like most of the breweries you see doing collaborations together are fairly close on the same footing or same scale yeah. but there's a significant difference in Sapwood Cellar's size and modern time size so I, I find that one interesting so we'll uh, be right back I'm excited to announce our newest sponsor Vanish Farmwoods Brewery Vanish is a brewery and entertainment complex located on a 62 acre hops and apple farm in Luckett's Virginia just 20 minutes from Frederick, Maryland and Leesburg, Virginia. With over 20 beers on tap, a selection of wines and ciders, along with multiple food options, there is something for everyone. Vanish has live music on Saturdays and Sundays and a wide variety of special events. Go to VanishBeer.com for information on everything they have to offer. All right, so what's the name of this beer? Galactic Burst. Is it named the same in both? No, it's Sky, Skyburst is the version that uh, we brewed at Modern Times when we were out there in August for the Festival of Dankness. <laughs> That's just cool names. Yeah. It was an <laughs> impressive festival. Yeah. No, Modern Times is, is I mean, it's just crazy. I, I was out there, what, six years ago now when there was their first summer, and I'd, I'd helped develop the recipes, um, being a, a home brewer in, in my basement in D.C., uh, you know, sending out sample bottles to... Jacob and, and the rest of the team and uh, to see where where they've come in that six years is just insane. It's impressive. Yeah. It, it was it was fun for us too is just to see kind of it made us kind of see how far we came in just a year because you know from from home brewers to then all of a sudden a year later we're pouring pouring beer in in California next to Russian <laughs> River we're like we don't belong here do we. Yeah. <laughs> It was alphabetical, so R yes. U to S A yeah. was very close. <laughs> so, d did I hear you correctly that it was the same base beer, uh, just different yeasts? So it essentially, it's the same recipe. Mm -hmm. um, we we even use it's essentially the same um, culture, but we get it from a different lab, and it has a slightly oh, okay. different uh, character. We we get yeast from R V A down in Richmond, um, and we like the isolate. It has this. This real light vanilla kind of character that it creates mm -hmm. um, that we don't normally get from the the standard uh, Boddington's isolate. So, how much of this did you make here? Um, so we we made uh, twenty barrels. So we did a double batch, but then um, we sort of um, added uh, uh, Sauvignon Blanc grape juice to half of it and created a, a different beer. Um, so it's essentially just ten barrels uh, were were kegged of the Galactic Burst base. And how much did they make? 120? 120 barrels, yeah. Four, I think it was so four 30-barrel batches. Yeah. And for them, that that's like a, a small run, right? Yeah, that's, it, they. I think every month they do at least 
like you know two or three um, double IPAs that they'll mostly sell canned on premises at their now six or seven locations. I don't know how many they have. They're, so they're brewing pretty much twenty four seven. Um, I think it was they twenty four six or twenty four five. Like they take Saturday nights off or something yeah. like that. Where we're brewing um, twice a week. Yeah. Whenever when tanks, um, yeah. you know, free up. So it, it it was fun for us to see, to see a operation like that. Yeah. No, it's it's a it's a whole different world. <laughs> so that I mean, they had offices. <laughs> they, they've taken over like most of most of the, like the block yeah. that they're on with you know like like um, shipping depots and barrel houses and offices and podcast studios and they have a podcast studio. I'm, I'll be guest number five when the Modern Times podcast uh, comes out. I mean, it's that's funny. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's like a little conference room with, yeah. with some microphones on books, but it's not. You know, yeah, it's not quite as high end as uh, you know the rest of their operation. <laughs> so. Th- who do they have? Do they just have other breweries on? I was the it? first guest that wasn't a Modern Times employee, I believe. Oh, okay. So, so they mainly just interview other employees? Yeah, I think it's more of a... It, I actually haven't listened to any of the episodes. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's more of a, like, what's going on at Modern Times? What have we learned? But the idea is to, okay. know, now that they've had five full episodes, which is, I guess, what you need to get listed on no, Stitcher and oh, something Oh, maybe else. those other ones, yeah. But, like, on... Google Play and yeah. and iTunes. You don't even have to have an episode yeah. yet. You they're, just they're, up like for some of the newspapers, other ones. We upload a a file that just says, "Hey, there's going to be this podcast on this <laughs> channel. Subscribe to it." Yeah, I, I think it's one of those sort of you know you build build your subscriber base a little bit before you try to entice people onto this the podcast that has uh, seven subscriptions or whatever gotcha. it is. Um, but yeah, no, it's I, I've 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 known um, the the founder Jacob McKean for years and. He's always been just super terrific to us. We did our, our first collab, uh, the Fruitening out there, almost two years ago now. Um, it felt a little like cheating, but I just showed up to blend because uh, a lot of the recipes they had in barrels were my original stuff and cultures I'd grown and things like that. Um, and do, that's, do you remember the fruiting rate? That was, well, it depends which one. Fruitening the, the, one was like, like four and a half pounds per barrel, and the other one was like six and a half or something. <laughs> um, but that's, that's what we use for like our... our um, our copyright on our uh, our brewery name was that we had to have something with interstate commerce involved, and so a collab in California qualified for the uh, USTOP, whatever it is. So, how um, how different is it brewing brewing on this scale as opposed to on that scale, or is it just making more beer? I don't think it's too terribly different in a lot of ways it's pretty much the same it's just you're you're collecting more water you're using more grain Um, most of these breweries too are are all you know they're doing smaller batches to fill um, a fermenter so they're brewing multiple times on a smaller scale and then filling a tank Um, modern times system is only three times as large as ours and they're i think the 45th largest brewery in the country Uh, so really they're only substantially larger in their fermentation capacity yeah, the, right? the, the, the big difference is number of simultaneous batches they can brew so really um, we can double batch so we'll have one batch that's maybe mashing while the second batch is in the whirlpool they'll they have four or five different uh, vessels so at any given time they could have one batch that's mashing in one that's laudering and one that's in the whirlpool and chilling it feels like um, juggling it, yeah. <laughs> and, and you're really limited to how many fermenters you have because um, yeah. for us most of the time our tanks are full so like we can't 
we can brew our our hot side stuff is is open it's free yeah. but there's nowhere to put the beer if, if yeah. we had more employees it would not be hard for us to knock out 20 or 30 barrels a day we just don't have anywhere to put it um how how long have they been open just over six years do you think that the um the landscape of the industry now will allow for breweries to grow that big or i do you think I, I i thought they were crazy for trying to be that big six years ago in <laughs> san diego i mean it's just i, I remember trying to talk jacob into like come to maryland you got like you're gonna open in san diego there's already stone alpine green flash yada yada, yada. but then you see a place that has i mean that kind of branding that kind of focus on quality and personnel and direct sales and they've grown in such a huge way in an already so saturated they were they were brewery number 100 in san diego Maryland still barely has 100 breweries in the whole yeah. state. Um, I think there's always room for breweries that do great beer and package it well and um, have that, you know, that focus um, to grow and get bigger. Um, it might, it's more and more at the expense of other breweries, perhaps. Um, but, you know, we've, we've seen, you know, Green Flash have trouble. We've seen Council Brewing in San Diego have trouble. Breweries that make great beer. Um, but that, you know, whether it's a business side or whether it's a... I think with almost all of them, it was debt. That, yeah. that was the, and, and the major problem, right? Pushing For, expansion. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Modern Times recently did like a public public offering that people could buy in. And, and part of that was that they, they're always trying to grow. Um, they've uh, opened places in L.A. and they, they bought a brewery in Portland and they have... Uh, a space in Anaheim that's been underway for a while and they've got a space in Oakland that's supposed to be opening anytime soon and they've got one in Santa Barbara and they have I mean it's it's that west coast model of, of popping up tasting rooms um, for legal reasons I'm sure but also for um, other reasons just the east coast doesn't tend to have many places um, other half is is certainly one of those sort of exceptions that seems to be popping up and will be popping up in DC um, sooner rather than later at this point which, they is, which is good because they make great beer and yeah. we'll be able to get some now. They um they have two currently, right? The DC one will be the third, or I believe so. Okay. I you know I don't know what the upstate New York situation is if it's just one location if there are multiple, but I think there might be. I think there yeah. might be two. I could be completely wrong. Um, but so like in Maryland, that was only recently even possible to yeah. do, and you can only have one other. Yeah, you tap can, room. You can have With two, the same license. two under the same license. I don't know what the rules about holding multiple licenses are. But even, um, you know, in different states, you know, you don't see many people with a Virginia brewery opening up a Maryland brewery. Oh, yeah. Or, um, you know, having extra, you know, Mad Fox did the Virginia brewery DC tasting room until they sadly closed down a couple of months ago. Do you think that's a function of the, the market? on this coast or the or just that the the people who own the breweries around here aren't interested in doing that i don't i mean i, I remember someone telling me in when i was in san diego six years ago that like essentially if you were a brewery and you didn't open a second location within the first two years like pack up shop that like that was <laughs> that was just ev almost everyone would be have that little 500 square foot tasting room um, downtown somewhere 
Uh, yeah, I don't. I really don't have a great sense if that's. I mean, I'm sure it's partly a legal thing, as you said. Just having that ability well, yeah. to have a second location now um, it, makes that licensing so much easier. In a lot of ways, it it does make a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. you you have your your production facility where you already have a tasting room, but you have room for expansion. You can add more tanks, um, and then you open a second location yeah. that you you're still supplying all the beer. Um, yeah, ra- rather getting, than trying to distribute beer pennies on the dollar compared yeah, to you, selling you full pours, get to keep yeah. your own margins. Yeah. Um, you don't need keep control nearly as big of a um, space because you're brewing the beer, you know, at your production facility, and then you're hopefully in the uh, spot where you know there's a lot of foot traffic. Yeah. So it it does make. Um, it does make sense. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I go uh, Denizens was probably the first one to hear yeah. in Smoketown just recently yep. was, but those are they're, they're opening for bigger production facilities. So Denizens, <laughs> yeah, both is of, anyway, yeah. yeah, both of them were both additional production yeah. facilities under separate licenses. Yeah. They were, they're not the separate tasting room. Yeah. But. Yeah, and it's it's certainly an idea we've kicked around for a long time and that we haven't gotten really any closer on. Um, but yeah, it, it makes so much more sense. I mean, everyone has those problems where we send out beer and tracking down the kegs and making sure someone taps that fresh hazy IPA we sent them yeah. without letting it sit in the back room for six weeks it's only to put a, it on when it's not great. It's going to be a brewery for sale in Frederick soon. Barley and hops oh. closed. So I guess a brew pub. Yeah. But um, So yeah, you could open a brew pub in Frederick. <laughs> Well, that's that's kind of the the, the thing because we you know you wouldn't need a space like that anymore because you, yeah. you you wouldn't need the the, the tanks. Um, yeah, because that, that would be just opening another brewery. Yeah, yeah, not exactly. All right, so I guess your book. <laughs> um, as I told you earlier, I'm a bad person, uh, so I did not even. Uh, get a copy of it beforehand to even thumb through that like is, I did. With, that is more than okay. It's a, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a book that's highly targeted to a small group of uh, really intense, passionate um, brewers, um, almost entirely on making hazy IPAs. So <laughs> I know, you might have just saved yourself uh, a little bit. Save, save yourself 20 bucks. Yeah. I mean, it would, it, in all honesty, would just go onto the pile of the other books I've purchased with full intention of reading, and then they just sit on my desk. You you have an audio version coming out soon, though, I, don't you? I you could, do. As you drive around the there state, you, you can listen to. See, that actually is more. Why isn't the sour beer one on audio? I, I I actually had this conversation with Julie from Denison's. Is she's on one of the or was at least on one of the oversight boards for the Brewers Publications. Um, and she said that she's been pushing them for a long time to do more um, audiobooks, and she's a big fan. I mean, that's one of the only ways I find time to consume books now. Yeah, me Although too. Although people should probably listen to podcasts instead. But they're free. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you about Overdrive from your local library. <laughs> um, uh, what's the name of the book? It's, uh, I think Mike actually helped come up with the name of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called The New IPA. Um, and so it's really, it's a scientific look, um, at all the different aspects of brewing, um, IPAs. So I just, over about two years, uh, I just collected hundreds of academic papers, read through them, um, had a distilled me- out the, yeah, I had a <laughs> mess of papers in my, in my, um, condo, but it was mostly just, Try to try to gather together what I could learn, piece it together, and try to connect dots the best I could um, to help 
brewers kind of understand um, the process. Not I wasn't my goal was not to say this is the best way to brew uh, an IPA, but more you know what does the science say? Um, how can we use that? Um, how can that inspire new ideas, um, new ingredients, new process tweaks? So that and, and you brewed some batches and sort of had them sent to to testing to try out some of those ideas and yeah to see if you know like we were talking about earlier does the science um, is it necessary reflected into the um, product so I I brewed um, one batch in particular that I had I'd send to a lab in France a wine lab um, to test for thiols um, which is you know something that you know, the wine world has been obsessed with for for many years and. Um, we're discovering a lot of the same compounds that are in hops um, are also the same ones that they're studying in wine grapes. Um, are you familiar with Garth Patterson at all? God, I hope he says his name right. Um, he's the professor at Mount St. Mary's. He's a chemistry, chemistry professor who's studying the um, uh, the something of hops. Why can't I? Like the... Like the chemistry of them? Yeah, but there's, there's a specific term that he t- talked about. I should have him on again because we had him on when we had a fraction of the subscribers we had now. Um, but like he te- one of his chemistry classes, he teaches w- f- from the science of brewing. Mm-hmm. But then like there's a lot of research that they do on uh, hops. That's like the vaporization of them and then measuring... Probably testing certain um, compounds. Um, doing, yeah, I, I haven't a, heard. I'm, it sounds interesting. I haven't, I haven't heard. He was really that. interesting. Way smarter than me by uh, order of magnitude. So I could only understand half of what he was saying. Well, hundred percent. Every every paper that I <laughs> I cited, those the people doing the actual real work are a hundred times smarter than I as well. So that's. Um, but, but that's that. I kind of that's sort of. I feel like my role in this is try to dumb stuff down a lot of times i would have to reach out um to the authors themselves confirm things um ask them you know this is what i'm getting from your paper is that is that accurate Um, well as a representative of the dumb people i appreciate (laughs) your service (laughs) why can't i i can't now it's gonna drive me crazy um but just have to go back and listen to the episode number long time ago episode number long time. <laughs> it was i think it was a double digit episode <laughs> um but like one of the things he was talking about because of like the uh the introduction the legalization of uh marijuana has made the study in um advancements in hops leap light years forward because of all this money and techniques that are being put into hop cultivation and developing is directly applicable to, not to hop, to marijuana, is directly applicable to hops also. Yeah, they're very, very similar plants, so that, that yeah. makes sense. That was one of the big problems with uh, brewing research until maybe just the last 10 or 15 years was it was all funded by Miller Coors, Budweiser, Lager Beer, and you still see these studies that you know are really about adding a tiny amount of hops to an American light lager, and how transferable is that? And luckily now there are a lot of scientists who's, yeah, they, they know about New England IPA and they're really pushing in yeah, but I would say for o- those beers. Only in the last maybe two years are yeah. there papers specifically testing um, hazy IPAs. So that's, um, it's definitely, we have a lot to learn, but that's, yeah. that's always the case when you're in the research world. So I'd listened to, I'm pretty sure it was on a podcast, and there was, it's one of the larger 
beer publications and it was a guy just railing about um his hatred of hazy ipas and and he was of the standpoint of that like brewing hazy beer is lazy and you could get the exact same flavor profiles with crystal clear beer did you find that at all in this or i've definitely had conversations similar to that but i think that you you see a lot of those breweries who came out against hazy ipa three or four years ago brewing them now yeah (laughs) and 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 some of those guys have have uh let's say reformed their ways and have realized that they're wrong and some of them just view it as um, consumers and opinion and whatever. I'll make it hazy. And usually those beers aren't great. And I think that just to speak to it's an easy beer to, to brew and, and make and it's lazy. I think it's, it's kind of the op- It's a very t- tricky style to brew. Um, it's one that's very sensitive to oxygen. It can go bad really quickly. Um, it's a style that you can very easily overdo the hops and get a very astringent character. Um, there's there's a lot of factors that go into making a, a good hazy IPA, so it's it's pretty um, it's not as easy as it as yeah. you know some I, imply. I really don't think that there are any easy beers to brew versus hard beers. They're, they all have different skill sets. Brewing, brewing a barrel aged sour beer is just it's not any easier than brewing a hazy IPA. It's just a different suite of things you have to worry mm-hmm. about. Um, in the same way that brewing Budweiser is not an easy beer to brew. There's nowhere to hide. But also, you don't have to be particularly creative in your your approach to anything, and you don't have to, um, you know, g- generate uh, how how do you dry hop, how do you source barrels, how do you source fruit. You have um, used years of experience, and you just dial everything in, and you just keep repeating. Yeah, uh, I can't find the term <laughs> that I'm trying to think That's of, but right. it was episode 39, and he uses the term a lot. So you would, um, but so here I'll give you a test. Why is um, that like like struck beer called skunked? Uh, what causes that skunking? That was first time. It's uh, it's it's the same compound that's actually intentionally added to natural gas and propane, so that you know that there's a gas leak. You wouldn't actually be able to tell if there was a gas leak unless they had mercaptans. It's not quite the right answer. <laughs> So molecularly, there are compounds and hops that are similar yeah. to the musk of a skunk. Yeah, we're captains. Yeah, but you didn't give the actual oh. explanation. What what's the what's the change that takes place that? What's the change that takes place with with so the light? You, yeah, the mercaptans are formed. So, <laughs> at the molecular level, they're very similar, except on a hop, there's yeah. a tail that comes off of the more dense structure and the UV light severs that tail to make it l- identical to the skunk's musk. There we go. And I'll give wants, you like and nobody ni- wants that. I'll give you like 90% on that. And hazy IPAs are so opaque that they can't get light struck. <laughs> Science says. Is that true? No, I don't okay. think so. <laughs> I, you had the look on your face like you were making it up as you're saying it. So I, like I wanted to run with it. It was like, wait, I want to pump the brakes <laughs> on that first. <laughs> <laughs> it's a just so story and that's how that's how the ipa got its haze <laughs> um so where can people find your book <laughs> uh amazon and the brewery and the brewery and the tasting room we have uh, a handful of copies as well as mike's book and um, Mar- maryland homebrew has some maryland homebrew has some um it's what also you get here scott will sign it for you <laughs> Ooh. uh 
the ebook is on Google Play, um, I guess uh, iTunes, um, and then of course on Amazon. And then I'm working on the, hopefully in the next couple of weeks having the audio version come out. Who's reading it? I'm um, hired a I believe he is an actor by trade. Um, uh, Anthony Hopkins, I think yeah. was that his name. <laughs> I was hoping for Samuel Jackson. Yeah. That would be. I wish. <laughs> I think he. I Some think guy he has from the internet. Better things to do. Yeah. I've heard that that is a miserable job. If, if, like, that, if that was my job, eight eight hours a day, particularly a book like this that has yeah. uh, so many words that you may. I, or I'm may intimidated not. myself to read yeah. some of these chapters. So, well, that, like I was, I was listening to someone describe the process of recording an audiobook. They said it just takes weeks because the producer will make you read the same passage over and over and over yeah, again. It, it wanted at least a month to to get this one done, so I'm not sure if that's a fast tracked. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, but. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to having that done. It, I'll finally finish it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was helping Scott edit it, like until we opened. And then, of course, like as soon as I was brewing like, you know, four days a week, There's I was like, good luck, Scott. <laughs> have fun. <laughs> Is that when you hired Brian? Didn't you have Brian Roth edit? Oh, yeah. Yep. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Brian uh, from Good Beer Hunting and um, his own personal blog was one of my favorite beer writers and someone I respect quite a bit. Um, so I reached out to him to do the the initial editing of of the book. To, okay. Yeah, he um, does some amazing writing. Yeah, he's very very thoughtful. <coughs> and I, I he, you were working with him even without me. That was a totally separate. Uh, yeah. I, I was just sort of uh, going through it as a brewer more okay. to uh, say, hey, I I don't understand this, or hey, could you clarify that? that yeah, kind which of was thing. super super helpful. That's why the first six chapters are so That's good. I hear <laughs> <laughs> what all the Amazon <laughs> reviews say. After <laughs> chapter six, it really goes downhill. Uh, um, is there anything else we should cover? I feel like we've we've hit all of my bullet points, dude. Uh, did you guys have anything that you wanted um, to talk about that I don't know about? I'm not sure when when this will air, but we'll do the, the beer that we were <laughs> drinking. will be releasing um, not this weekend, but the October the 26th Saturday, dude. and we're gonna have. Uh, yeah, that took place a while ago, probably. Yeah, <laughs> this will probably be uh, mid-November. Oh, okay. Ish. Yeah, so so you may you might be looking forward to we did a bourbon barrel uh, sour cherry beer that uh, will be coming out in November, hopefully, and then a dark saison that had uh, Zante currants and uh, dates in it. That sounds very interesting. Yeah, it's uh, a friend and I have been doing dark saisons every fall for about ten years, and so the the idea is that every year we'll do a dark saison where we'll really serve the fresh version. And then last year's barrel age version, and then we'll kind of keep that rolling now. If you're interested, you can watch them taste through all their years of it in the in the tasting room. It's on it's the Sapwood Sellers YouTube <laughs> channel. <laughs> oh yeah, we could talk about that. Um, uh, you, I think you guys put out interesting videos, uh, edu- very educational ones. Uh, we we try. I mean, I think there's video is um, one of those areas where there's not a lot of beer content. Um, or a lot of videos of people sitting around tasting beers, but not sort of the action of brewing. Um, part of the issue is that when you brew beer, it all kind of looks the same. Like, yeah. watch, watch, look at this stainless Every, steel vessel as yeah. it transfers to this other stainless watch steel vessel. Watch me stand here and wait for this yeah. stuff. <laughs> um, and so I, I do my best to shoot some video anytime we're using, like, fruit or transferring into barrels or where we're doing anything like that. But um, we, we try to have fun with it. Um, we uh, we have a video where we brew the same beer on uh, my homebrew system and then on the big system. We yeah, just I've seen did that one. one. We just did one where uh, Scott made a beer with Trick cereal, 
uh, five gallons of. Uh, I added we that take this very later. serious here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we. <coughs> That's sort of the goal. It's just it's it's more of an outlet for sure a little education, but also for us just to have. Uh, I've been trying to cook up a scheme where we like both go to like a dollar store and we have five bucks to like make a special version of a beer <laughs> with whatever we can get. The problem is he's had this idea for a while, so he already knows what he's going to get. I haven't. I have not been to a dollar store in several <laughs> years. I haven't. I haven't game planned yet. Uh, do you pay attention to reviews? Definitely. Do you have? a hilarious bad review that you can tell no, someone, I, honestly or? i guess the what the ones that irk me tend to be the ones that um accept that this isn't something that they're interested in and still uh, give it a low score yeah, okay like the the duclaw uh beer uh yeah. two stars no, not we, my style we, <laughs> we, we we've, we've had a couple of those like literally one i think was my favorite sour beer ever one and a half stars <laughs> I, and that was, I don't respond to many, but I respond yeah. to that one. They were like, yep, yeah, I'm just, I don't like sour beers, but you know, this, yeah. is, this is a pretty good one. Um, and I, 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 when I got into beer, it was a beer advocate world, and I'm sure rate beer as well, but there's sort of an expectation that you, if you didn't like porter, and you yeah. thought this was a pretty good porter, you'd sort of yeah, you'd boost up the them. rating a little yeah. bit to, to accept the fact that it wasn't your style, but... Um, yeah, it's it's always it's. Um, I mean, Untapped has been very kind to us. We mm-hmm. are currently the thirteenth highest rated brew pub in the world on Untapped. Oh wow! Congratulations. So, like, I mean, it's it doesn't mean a, a huge <laughs> amount of anything because I don't even know if technically we are a brew pub. It's just yeah. what I decide to categorize us as. Um, so ratings have been very good for us, but it's also um, sad when you see a beer that you think is special or or unique or delicious, and is much lower rated than the one that you dumped a. Sh- huge amount of uh, coconut into because coconut delicious and staghorn sumac or fermented acorns or a 3% IPA mm-hmm. are not um, as you as universally and easily enjoyable. I um I won't make make my listeners listen to, through this again, but when we're finished, I'll show you one of the reviews for the beer I did with True Respite. That uh, was nice. It's more review on me than <laughs> the beer itself. <laughs> Uh, I, I I tend to pay more attention to reviews right when we release a new beer. I'm always that's when I'm the most interested, just to see yeah. um, what we tried to create if we if it's if it's landing or not. Yeah. Um, and it's it's it has sort of influenced like we've pushed our quick mix fermentations more acidic um, because that was the general feedback was that a beer at a, a 3.5 or 3.6 pH was not boom as sour as people expected and now we're down to like 3.3 and people generally seem more happy and you sort of want to see that spread of some people who think it's a little too sour and some people yeah. think it's then you know you hit the right enough. spot can't make everybody happy but um but it also lets us know how to message for a beer hey we, we were calling a beer that was a 3.6 sour maybe we should back it down and say hey like mildly tart or yeah. you know mm-hmm. like how, how do you talk about beer to set the correct sense. expectation yeah. Because when somebody's that's ordering a good a way beer, to use that feedback. Yeah, yeah they, they want to know. Um, I also tend to look at like if we send kegs out, I like sending it to bars where people tend to like the beer. That says to me that their lines are clean and they're yeah. explaining the beer well. And um, or hey, why are people checking in this beer that we haven't had on tap for two months at yeah. beer bar X? That's not a great yeah, sign. That's a problem. <laughs> that that is the downside in general of sending out beer is you you lose control yeah. the minute it leaves your your facility. And, Particularly when you're a small brewery that doesn't have uh, a QC team when it's me with a microscope and I haven't used <laughs> one since high school. 
um, you know, it's, it's not the level of control that a larger brewery has that their beers are designed to sit in kegs warm for three months if, if it comes to that, where yeah. ours are designed to have Spencer, who knows what he's doing, tell <laughs> us when a, when a keg tastes a little bit off because it's been sitting on for a week and a half and time to move to a new keg yeah. because it hasn't been moving. Hey, gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for having me out and giving me some of your time. I know you're busy um, and for giving me a sneak peek of the, what's the name of this one again? First First Blush. First Blush, absolutely delicious, even though it's made of a a bunch of garbage, in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, pomace is essentially garbage. (laughs) You're not wrong. Uh, But it was absolutely delicious. So is the Modern Times collab. Um, So uh, thank you for having me out. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Cheers. Thanks for having us. Yep. Uncapped is brought to you with support from McClintock Distilling, Maryland's first and only organic certified distillery. They are well known for their award-winning gin and are rapidly growing a name for themselves for their matchstick bourbon and bootjack rye whiskey that have both won double gold at international spirits competitions. You can visit them in historic downtown Frederick along Carroll Creek for tours and tastings. Go to McClintockDistilling.com for more information. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook, and if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh my God, that's good.